0: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com/slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hey guys, before we go any further, remember that this is a listener-supported podcast supported by fans of When Diplomacy Fails, just like you. BFIT is an acronym, and BFIT is really the best way to support this podcast. What does BFIT stand for? Well, B stands for blog, WDFpodcast at blogspot.ie, where you can see what's on my mind, as well as donate to the podcast if you feel so financially inclined. E is for email, WDFpodcast at hotmail.com. F is for Facebook, where you can like the Facebook page and join the History Podcasters group, where you'll find history podcasts that you listen to, I may not even realize, are on Facebook, so go check that out i is for itunes where if you search the podcast in the search bar you'll find when diplomacy fails please rate us please leave a review so that the itunes algorithm knows that when diplomacy fails is actually pretty damn popular t is the easiest one of all to do it stands for tell someone tell anyone you know even if you don't think they'll be interested in history spreading the word is the best way to get us out there so thanks very much monetary support or moral support is all very much appreciated so thanks very much guys Also, thanks a million to Chris for his donation. Now please relax and enjoy the show. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired, signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, or those who are cold and are not clothed. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Hello and welcome to the When Diplomacy Fails special on World War 1, episode 20.2, 1896-1905. We have a lot of stuff to get through today, so I figure we just jump right in there and do it. I will now take you to the year 1896. Britain in the late 1890s was engaged in a ferocious war in South Africa with the Boers. Italy was engaged in a disastrous war in Ethiopia... America would go on to fight Spain in 1898. Everyone was keeping a close eye on China. All in all, the last years of the 19th century did not go quietly, and the policies of those European states often overlapped depending on what they were doing and where. Africa, the Middle East and Asia were perhaps the most obvious spheres of influence being fought over by Europe. Britain had sizable interests in all theatres, but it was Africa, particularly South Africa, which concerned her the most at this specific time. It interests me how Germany changed so much over the last few years. When we left Germany in the last episode, she was perhaps the most uncertain of all the European powers. Would she make a deal with Britain, or would Britain somehow patch up its relationship with Russia and France? Would Germany reconcile herself with Russia if France was somehow removed from the equation? Would Italy or Austria remain as secure in their alliance as they had been, or would they fall out? from such fallout, what if Italy was to treat with Britain? Would Germany abandon Austria for such a potential three-way alliance? Would Germany look outside of her immediate European sphere for allies? What was Germany's next course of action going to be? That's why I find it hard to explain the apparent antagonism on the part of the Kaiser when he sent the Kruger telegram, now infamous, to the President of the Republic Britain had just failed to covertly extinguish. After wishing to treat with Britain since his inception as Emperor, why was the Kaiser so willing to poke Britain with a stick? The real reason, which we'll see more examples of later, is that the Kaiser still wanted the same things, i.e. an understanding with Britain, but through the advice of his closest advisers and a certain naval officer, he had decided to change the way in which he tried to acquire that friendship. William Carr, in his book A History of Germany, 1815 to 1990, explains how this shift in German foreign policy from delicately tiptoeing to stamping on Britain's toes manifested itself. Quote, what gave offence was not so much the objective as Germany's form of diplomacy. German intervention in South Africa is a great example of this. Britain's quarrel with the Boer Republics was reaching a climax at the close of the century. For Britain, vital strategic interests were at stake. As long as the Boer Republics remained independent, Britain could not unite the Cape Colony or Rhodesia, and so consolidate its position in South Africa. In December 1895, Jameson invaded the Transvaal with 800 men in an attempt to seize Johannesburg and overthrow the Republic with the aid of the Uthlanders, as the non-Boer settlers were called. The raid was a miserable failure, quickly repudiated by the British government. The German Emperor was highly incensed by the Jameson raid, and insisted on immediate action He talked wildly of declaring a protectorate over the Transvaal, and sending troops to the Republic. His advisers persuaded him to settle for what they thought was a less harmful gesture of protest, in the shape of a congratulatory telegram to Paul Kruger, President of the Transvaal Republic. Anxiety about German investment in the Transvaal, and concern for 15,000 Germans working in the gold mines, were subordinate considerations in the Emperor's mind. He was resentful of British success and determined to teach her a sharp lesson which would make her see that Germany had as much right as Britain to be in Africa. In a muddled fashion, he and his advisers hoped that by bringing pressure to bear on Britain at a weak and vulnerable point, they could force her to come to terms with the Triple Alliance." The Kruger telegram was a message sent by a Kaiser who was jealous of British gains and wanted to try a new strategy with Britain. The Kaiser believed he was showing Britain that Germany was willing to take its rightful place in world affairs. German nationalists, who would grow in number over the next few years, were pleased with a German policy that wasn't afraid to pursue its own ends for its own reasons. Britain would bow to pressure and accept that she is lucky to have Germany as a friend. She will thank us for interfering here, because we were merely exercising our right to do so. But the telegram was a diplomatic failure. It was dismissed in Britain, much to the surprise of the Kaiser, as an unwelcome and antagonistic piece of writing from a previously friendly country and relation to the Queen. To Britain, such a change on the part of Germany from vague ally to vague threats did not constitute a coherent German policy, they didn't understand it. The event cast a shadow over the Anglo-German friendship for the first time, and was the first real evidence of a meddling Germany that Britain had. It did not like what it saw. But Anglo-German relations went from sour to sweet over the coming years, because once Britain finished its business in South Africa, it came to the conclusion that it had few friends in the world, and perhaps the policy of splendid isolation had reached its end. Britain would always need to keep an eye on European dealings to ensure that the balance of power there did not become too unbalanced. But it was Asia which really pushed Britain in the direction of an alliance with Germany. That's right folks, a little over a decade before the greatest war that the world had ever seen, and Germany was considered Britain's best chance for an ally. The impetus behind this policy, which Wilhelm II would have killed for a decade before, was Russia. Russia had acquired the Chinese port of Fort Arthur in March 1898, and this was a step for Russia, which Britain believed could only end in complete Russian domination of the China Sea. Joseph Chamberlain was the colonial secretary who made the next few years of negotiation with Britain seem so urgent. It was his belief that Britain needed a strong continental ally, and in Chamberlain's view, Germany was Britain's natural ally. Between 1898 and 1901, Chamberlain tried three times to form a concrete alliance with Germany, and three times he was turned away. Right now you're probably thinking exactly what I'm thinking. If Wilhelm II's entire reason for being in the last decade was to get Britain on side, why did he actively prevent an understanding with Britain when the time and circumstances were so perfect? The answer will probably annoy you. In simple terms, Wilhelm and his advisers concluded that an alliance with Britain at this time would not suit Germany. I know, I know, but just hear me out. The reason why Britain wanted an alliance with Germany was so that it could have a power to hold Russia in Europe, while its Royal Navy destroyed the Russian fleet in the East. No mention was made of British troop deployments, or how such an agreement would fit into the Triple Alliance. It was a defensive alliance with Britain, but it was based solely on British terms and British concerns. Germany would have had to fight a two-front war against France and Russia, while Britain simply plotted its naval ships around the world. Clearly, such an agreement was unfair, especially when you consider other developments Germany had witnessed unfold. Germany was a power as much a victim of geography as any other power, The Kaiser knew the advantages of having Britain on side, and he had participated in a sort of multipolar relationship, which involved first awe, then jealousy, then intimidation, and now refusal to adapt to Britain's desires and pave the way for an alliance. Russia was still a consideration. Russia had signed an agreement with Austria in 1897 that agreed to preserve the status quo of the Balkans. The Balkans were not to go out quietly in the 19th century, as once again war broke out, this time between the Ottoman Empire and Greece, over the status of Crete in February 1897. Greece was shown to be badly deficient and the Ottoman Empire still capable of hanging in there. The war is significant in that it was the last war, at least in my knowledge, that the Ottoman Empire would emerge victorious from. The Ottoman Empire was widely viewed as the sick man of Europe, but just how sick it was became clear over the next few years. The conflict in the Balkans and subsequent clean-up arrangements made by Austria and Russia that culminated in their 1897 agreement went at least a little way in convincing the Kaiser and his advisors that it would be possible to keep both Russia and Austria happy. Between the Kaiser's desire to create a German navy in the Royal Navy's image to his imperial designs on Africa, there was a great deal of German policy, even in the late 1890s and early 1900s, that would provide a cause for disagreement in the Anglo-German camps. William Carr provides an excellent summary of the free hand idea that German policy emulated for a brief time from about 1899 to 1901. Quote, "All things considered, Germany's policy of the free hand seemed correct. Germany must avoid new commitments and remain friends with both Russia and Britain for as long as possible. Skillful diplomacy would reap a rich harvest. Germany would slip past envious rivals." dominate Europe absolutely within a few years by virtue of her unrivaled industrial power, and become a world power without a shot being fired, by German guns at any rate. As the German ambassador in London remarked in 1901, If people in Germany would only sit still, the time will come when we can all have oysters and champagne for dinner. End quote. However, once again, Germany exaggerated the means at her disposal and underestimated the fragile, constantly changing circumstances of the time. Like it or not, Germany was bound to Austria. Austria, while it was on reasonable terms with her now, could never reconcile herself with Russia completely so long as both were so invested in the Balkans. By way of association, then, Russia was never going to look at Germany as its ally. Relations may be friendly, but the elephant in the room i.e. the fact that Russia was already bound to Germany's worst enemy in France, and the fact that Germany was bound to Russia's worst enemy in Austria, could only be ignored for so long. Austria and Russia were bound to disagree over something in the future, and when that happened, probably in the Balkans, Wilhelm could not abandon his ally Austria, just as Russia could not abandon France. Thus the entire policy of a free hand was based on false information, and this is before one even considers the conduct of Britain. If you remember the Boxer Rebellion episode, then you'll see just how well this fits into the narrative here. It was a bit more of a distraction than anything else at the time, though. Pretty much all the powers that sent soldiers to put down the rebellion, so remember America, Britain, Austria, Russia, Italy, Japan, Germany, and France, all had a vested interest in the region. They could not agree on who owned what, but they could all agree that leaving Chinese markets to the Chinese people exclusively was very bad for imperialist markets. So the façade of cooperation continued. For Wilhelm II, this façade was further proof that Germany was fully capable of playing both sides. Italy was certainly desperate to see Britain in the Triple Alliance, and Britain would surely have committed to it, had Italy and Germany been the only two members. But Austria's membership complicated things for Britain. As it was, she was already cautious of France in Africa, and Russia in Asia. If the Balkans were added to this mix, British policy would be going in far too many different directions, and couldn't possibly please everyone. So instead of Europe and all its problems, Britain looked abroad to Japan. Japan's entry onto the world stage was made official by Britain's consideration of it as a major power worthwhile enough of its time to be considered for an alliance. Japanese statesmen had no illusions about the purpose of it. Russia was the alliance's key objective. Japan, just like Britain, was concerned about Russian activities in the China Sea. The years just before, during and directly after would pave the way for numerous Russo-Japanese conflicts in Asia, primarily in Manchuria, where the Japanese believed they should set their sights on. It was this natural partnership of the two island nations that constituted Britain's first formal agreement with a foreign power since the Crimean War, and it also meant the end of splendid isolation. Russia would have been doubly concerned, this was perhaps the most direct step Britain had made towards restricting its influence since the Crimean War. Coupled with Japan, a considerable force in its own right, Britain would have key positions from which it could cripple Russia's imperial dreams in Asia, and thus the relationship between Russia and Britain deteriorated, while Britain's relationship with Japan blossomed. However, the door was by no means closed on a German alliance just because one had been signed with Japan. The alliance was announced to the world on February 3rd 1902, having been officially approved by both governments four days before in London. Immediately, this sparked Russian attempts to approach Germany, all the while Britain began to hold out the card of another three-way alliance for Germany, in the form of an Anglo-Japanese-German alliance. Germany was at this point at least considering the British offer, as both the German and British governments enjoyed a rise in friendly relations since the slump of 1900. This partial reconciliation between the two states was brought about by a key event in Britain's own history, the death of Queen Victoria. Vicky died on January 22nd, 1901, and the death of such a queen, Britain's longest reigning monarch to date, brought an outpouring of emotion from her descendants scattered across the globe. Notable mourners at her funeral included relatives in Russia, Spain, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. Crucially, though, by her deathbed was none other Kaiser Wilhelm II. Wilhelm during this time displayed great affection for his grandmother, and upon her passing seemed so genuinely upset that British public opinion seemed to favor the young Emperor again. There began to materialize the belief that, upon the fulfillment of British treaties in Japan, that Germany may join the alliance. One thing was for well certain, such a three-way alliance would prevent Russia from ever moving without double-checking first. Austria, whether given British approval or not, would not pass up the chance to wage a war against a vulnerable Russia, especially if its main ally Germany appeared to be leading the Crusade. Italy, understanding that Britain was its ally, would feel a greater freedom to act against France, and may have become more aggressive in its colonial policy as a result, perhaps even invading Tunisia. Japan in the Far East would feel confident in their British ally to not fear Russian threats and combined with British naval power, could easily snub Russia out from the equation. In short, what I'm getting at here is, while the romantic idea of an alliance between Britain, Germany and Japan seemed to possess only three elements, the reality was that such an alliance would cause a chain reaction, should war ever emerge from it. What that means is, the Anglo-German-Japanese alliance was even more potent in reality than it looked on paper. Surely, Britain would not pass up the chance to remove Russia from Asia and hopefully neutralize France and Africa at the same time. In actual fact, while the final details were never to be hammered out for this three-way alliance, any German, British or Japanese statesman who wished to pursue it would not have the chance. A war was about to change the very nature of European alliances and cause a series of chain reactions that would change not just the dynamic of the two armed camps, but also the future of the upcoming war. Before we get to the war between Russia and Japan, though, I'd like to examine some other issues, and ideas, that were floating around Europe at this time. Some of them you know, while others, hopefully, may surprise you. Remember where we left Admiral von Tirpitz in the last episode? In 1895, Tirpitz had just been promoted to Rear Admiral. He had the ear of the Kaiser with his grand plans for the German Navy, but for the moment he was fighting an uphill battle against his supervisor Holman, who argued that Tirpitz's ideas would only bankrupt Germany, and send it firmly towards war with Britain. Tirpitz was thus becoming disenchanted with his lack of progress by late 1895, and when he informed the Kaiser of his plans to resign, the Kaiser begged him to stay. Tirpitz was told to send the Kaiser a list of recommendations for the German navy, revealing how Tirpitz believed the funds and support for such a venture could be acquired from its necessary outlets. Bear in mind this was all occurring around the time of the Boer War, and the timing for Tirpitz's return of his findings just happened to coincide with the delivery of the Kruger Telegram and the mess that went with it. So Holman, Tirpitz's superior Naval Secretary, was asked by the Kaiser to obtain funds himself directly from the Reichstag. The Kaiser at the time wanted long-range cruisers that could protect their interests in the Transvaal, but the approval never came from the Reichstag, and Chancellor Hohenlohe did not approve of the naval increase anyway, so the whole programme stalled. Turpitz complained about the lack of progress to the Kaiser directly, because he knew where Wilhelm's sympathies lay. The best course of action, both concluded, was to remove Holman from his position as Naval Secretary, and use Turpitz as his replacement. Turpitz was likely overjoyed at this idea, but first both had to delay their course of action, due to Holman's production of a new naval bill, which would bring three cruisers and a new battleship into the Navy. Rather than complicate things, Terpitz was advised by Wilhelm, and Wilhelm's sympathetic advisers, to wait until the bill had been passed and the ships built. While the two were waiting on Holman's bildo, though, Terpitz was shipped off to serve in the German East Asia Squadron, where he learned firsthand the second-class nature that the German government viewed its overseas fleet. Additionally, Terpitz experienced humiliation, as the German ships were often forced to wait for the British ships, to coal and dock before his vessels were allowed in. To rectify this problem and get a pad of his own, Tirpitz eventually decided on Tsingtao as a port for the German Navy before he was sent back to Germany, after word had reached him via the Kaiser that he had been named as the new State Naval Secretary. Ironically, Holman had resigned because the Reichstag had voted that his budget be reduced from 70 million to 58 million marks little did the reichstag know that his successor turpitz would spend more money on ships than anyone previously believed possible and that the man who they enabled to replace the sensible conservative and traditional holman would alter germany's course so drastically as to make war with britain a certainty turpitz went the long way home through an extended tour of america arriving in berlin on june the 6th 1897 He was ready to propose his naval theory to the Reichstag, though he remained sceptical that the Reichstag would accept it. Why was Tirpitz so eager to expand the German navy? Why was the Kaiser so eager to facilitate him? I know I said before that the Kaiser desired a navy as a form of a pet project, but why? The very fact that Tirpitz was so obviously going against the grain with his naval theories and plans for a new direction in German naval policy necessitates a proper explanation. The time has come to examine perhaps the most popular and influential book of the day, Alfred Thayer Mahan, and his book The Influence of Sea Power Upon History 1660-1783*. The publication, and thereafter acceptance of the ideas within his book, transformed Mahan overnight from a small-time naval officer to a worldwide sensation and foremost theorist on naval ideas. Its influence on the policies of Germany, Britain, and the United States were to become abundantly clear over the coming years, and the Kaiser's fascination with its contents might go some way to explaining the change in German direction. Sadeo Asada, in his book From Mahan to Pearl Harbor, the Imperial Japanese Navy and the United States, Writes of the change in policy the book's ideas influenced. Quote, the book caused a sensation among foreign leaders precisely because it was a timely publication which met their respective political needs. The British Admiralty, augmenting their building programme in 1889, welcomed Mahan's forceful exposition of the importance of sea power. In Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was about to launch an overseas career, wrote that he was. Now not just reading, but devouring Captain Mahan's book, and I'm trying to learn it by heart. It is a first-class book, and classical in all points. Recently lured to the sea, the young Kaiser was determined to lay the foundation for a navy that could challenge British sea supremacy. Japanese leaders responded to Mahan's book with equal alacrity. Baron Kaniko Kentaro, former Minister of Agriculture and Finance, who happened to be in the US on a fact-finding tour, hastened to peruse it. A graduate of Harvard Law School, Kanika was a leading westernizer and importer of American ideas to Japan. He immediately recognized the universal implications of Mahan's Sea Power Doctrine." Wilhelm II always had wanted a navy. It is important to understand that much. By way of his almost constant interactions with Britain, Wilhelm was surrounded by the naval staffs of an apparently glorious Britain. Wilhelm's close relationship with his grandmother and British Queen Victoria led to, as we have seen, speculation about an Anglo-German alliance, but also instilled in Wilhelm the sense that, for the sake of German glory, a German fleet and German overseas empire that would require that fleet was altogether necessary. Britain, Wilhelm would argue, was made great by its fleet and resulting empire. Why could Germany not follow suit? Wilhelm was aided in this goal, ...by admirals such as Tirpitz, who believed in the necessity of a naval force considerable enough to pose a realistic threat to Britain. Wilhelm's advisers, while initially reluctant, eventually began to accept the latest course. Many agreed with Tirpitz, when on June 15th, 1897, he made a presentation to the Kaiser on his findings. Britain, Tirpitz argued, was the enemy of Germany and of German designs on the world. Because Britain is our enemy, we must fight fire with fire and build a fleet large enough to counteract theirs. A target was outlined for two squadrons of eight battleships, plus a fleet flagship and two reserves. This was to be completed by 1905, and cost 408 million marks, or 58 million a year, the same as the existing budget, though it would rise considerably in the years after. It was a crucial step in German foreign policy. For one, Germany now had a clear-cut naval plan, as opposed to the previous years, where Germany gradually acquired their ships piecemeal and lacked any coherent naval plan. The second point is the most striking, though, that even at this early stage, mid-1897, Germany's most powerful naval officer had portrayed Britain as the enemy, and Kaiser Wilhelm II, the grandson of that country's sovereign, had approved the observation. With such a decision about its foreign policy in tow, it might surprise us to see a certain level of friendship enter into the Anglo-German relations in the years immediately following the decision. It had been relatively easy for Tirpitz to convince the Kaiser that Britain was Germany's enemy in 1897. Britain and Germany had, after all, just banged heads over the international situation in South Africa. But when the conflict had ended, and the trade between the two began to resume and thereafter increase, and when the Kaiser began to take ever more frequent visits to Britain and his beloved ailing grandmother, the doubts as to whether the two countries were destined to be enemies would surely have crept into Wilhelm's mind. With the death of Victoria came the outpouring of genuine emotions and condolences on both sides, and the two began to become even closer together, with a diplomatic initiative on the part of many British statesmen, including Chamberlain as we have seen, to acquire a solid German alliance that was seemingly in the works, Britain's alliance with Japan merely meant that Britain was not in splendid isolation anymore, and that surely the old excuse of not wanting to tie herself to any alliance on the continent would have expired with it. However, such moves were misleading. We should not forget that. At the-
0: hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
1: This time, Austro-German military planners were considering plans for a two-front war that did not include Britain on its side. Of these plans, the Schleifen Plan is perhaps the most famous. Born out of the ideas of Alfred von Schleifen, the plan was born out of the fear of a two-front war and the need for a solution. Schleifen proposed a heavy-turning movement into northern France. That was the earliest element of his plan but by the time it had been fully developed in 1905, Schlieffen had accounted for the most tedious of practicalities, from the comparative weaknesses of Russia since the late 1890s because of its defeat by Japan, to its slow mobilization speed, while at home, everything from German train times to German soldiers' marching speeds were calculated to develop a picture of a lightning-fast war in the West against France, plunging the country into a quick defeat and submission, before then turning the rest of Germany's considerable forces against Russia. The plan relied on a few key eventualities. The major ones included numerical superiority over French forces in the West, the slow mobilization speed of Russia's armies, which would grant German Western operations more time to defeat France, and, crucially, the bulk of Austrian forces aiding the small amount of German forces left behind to defend the Russian front in the early days, until France was defeated and the whole of Germany could be turned against her. It was an ambitious plan, And, as you'll see in the future, it very nearly succeeded, despite its inaccuracies and restrictive requirements. One of these requirements, that of a slow to mobilise Russia, meant that once Russia began to mobilise her forces in the summer of 1914 before declaring war, Germany was forced to declare war on her, or risk compromising the Schleifen plan altogether. But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Tirpitz continued to develop the German navy, even while an Anglo-German alliance appeared inevitable. The second German naval bill of 1900 was passed on the backdrop of an angry German Reichstag, after British ships had stopped and searched three German vessels en route to aiding the South African Boers. Tirpitz had been very busy over the past few years. He created numerous institutions, including the creation of the Joint Committee on Naval Security, to discuss, well, naval security, the creation of a joint committee on naval finance to discuss issues on naval finance, and a countrywide tour where Tirpitz tried to persuade as many influential Germans as possible that Germany required a navy capable of defending itself from attack and as a symbol of its first power status. He then held a conference in which numerous influential intellectuals were allowed to speak on the importance of trade to German interests and the rate at which German naval capabilities had fallen behind the rest of the world, and how critically dangerous that was. All in all, it painted a convincing picture, that of a Britain who was hostile to all, and of the overall need for a German fleet strong enough to defend its newly won colonies, and defend its coast. Turbots actively used paranoia as a tool to create an atmosphere in which Germany was in critical danger. Germany's enemies were exaggerated and reported on in the press as having crucial advantages in naval power over Germany. The examples of great fleets throughout history and their impact on a nation's greatness was emphasised, which created an odd balance between using Britain as an example of a nation made great by sea power, while also highlighting it as Germany's major enemy. The Navy League was established where like-minded individuals could gather and deliberate on German naval policy. Critics were inevitable, but so considerable was the evidence Tirpitz had gathered before the Reichstag, and so extensive was his research and procurement of statistics, academic sources, and undeniable evidence, that the mood began to change. The first bill was passed on the 26th of March 1898 to the ecstatic enthusiasm of Wilhelm II, who had believed public opinion would never allow his dream of a fleet for the part he played in making the Kaiser's dream a reality, Tirpitz was elevated to a position on the Prussian Ministry of State, a position which ensured his influence on the Kaiser and the rest of the German government. He would hold this position for almost two decades, and by this stage, his biggest challenge—that of convincing his colleagues of the need for a fleet—had been accomplished, and Tirpitz could rest relatively easy, secure in his position and confident in the fact that he had steered German naval policy towards a brave new direction. Little thought was given, during his elation, as to how the British would react to such a bill, or how, by the time the second Bill of Naval Enlargement was passed two years later, in 1900, the two countries would be solidly locked in a naval arms race, which only grew in its potency as the years progressed. For Britain, alarm bells only started to really ring in 1900, when Germany ordered eight world-class battleships to be built. The very idea that Germany could build ships on the same level of quality as Britain was a cause for concern. But the fact that their industrial capabilities allowed for a comparatively rapid production cycle was the major issue. This was the real event that brought Britain out of its splendid isolation. It could not sit by and watch its monopoly be overturned by what was already the strongest military power on land in Europe. Thus Britain began to accelerate its own building program and the elephant in the room in the Anglo-German relations thereafter became this idea that, while an Anglo-German understanding was very nice, both were actively trying to outbuild the other in ships. Furthermore, the new policy did not ingratiate Germany closer to Britain, as perhaps another spin-off theory had suggested. Britain was starting to feel bullied, and did not like Germany's forceful entrance onto the world stage of naval giants. In this play, Navies, Britain had the lead role, and could not afford to back down to German pressure, so long as it felt its security at home and empire was threatened. Thus began the slow, but eventual drifting apart of Britain and Germany. The German underestimation of British character, and the idea that Germany could intimidate or scare Britain into a favourable alliance, had mutated into the idea that Germany, because of its first power status, needed a navy, a powerful one, but that Britain, because of the international naval laws it had set in place, such as the two power standard, would never allow Germany to acquire this navy without a whole lot of strongly worded letters. The result was a strange logic. Germany was developing a navy because Britain was supposed to be its main enemy, and for reasons of empire defence and prestige, it had created a world-class navy. But Britain became the main enemy of Germany because of this navy and all the things it suggested. It's almost bizarre now that we look back and see that because of Turpitz's naval bills, and the Kaiser's desire to emulate Britain wherever possible, Germany had alienated a power that could have been its greatest ally. Anti-German individuals in Britain were given real credibility by the increase in naval production and expenditure in Germany, and these measures convinced those British statesmen who had previously been undecided that it was Germany, not Russia, who was its most dangerous rival. It didn't happen overnight, and it was an idea which many were resistant to in London, due to the numerous reasons I've already covered. But the major case for Germany as the enemy would emerge as history began to unfold, and more specifically, as Japan went to war with Russia. Before we go into that though, a little interesting side note for you all. Michael L. Hadley and Roger Sarty's book, Tin Pots and Pirate Ships, Canadian Naval Forces and German Sea Raiders, 1880-1918, to is a history nerd's dream, especially for obscure history like Canada's navy and what it contributed to Britain's war effort. I'll be honest, I haven't read half the book, but that's because I skipped ahead to the second chapter that caught my eye, entitled German Designs on North America. Personally, I always wanted to know exactly what Germany's plans with respect to America's potential entry into the war were. We all know that famous story of the Zimmer Telegram which encouraged Mexico to declare war on America, an act which encouraged American President Woodrow Wilson to declare war on Germany in mid-1917. We'll cover the diplomacy coming off that in a future episode in this special, but what I always wanted to know is what Germany planned on doing to stop, or at least delay, the American beast across the Atlantic. Hadley and Sarty delve into this, writing of the origins of those plans. Quote, the first thrust of German naval strategy towards North America sprang from a German-American confrontation over colonial claims in Samoa which threatened to break out into open hostilities in the 1880s. The crisis facing the German government in February 1889 posed two crucial questions. How is war to be waged against North America, and what preparations should be made?" At this time, the idea of cruiser warfare that we'll see develop into submarine tactics was in its genesis. The idea that a numerically inferior navy could still achieve victory by using hit-and-run tactics and destroying the enemy's merchant fleet in order to cripple it financially and starve it economically was at this stage applied to cruisers, the small faster vessels of the navy, but would soon be applied to submarines, once acceptance of them became widespread. Germany's State Secretary of the German Foreign Office, soon to be Chancellor, Bernard von Bülow, wrote to the Kaiser in April of that year, saying that the incident had provided "...new proof of the fact that overseas policy can only be carried out with sufficient fleet power." Hilariously, Wilhelm II replied with his usual characteristic bluntness. That's the very thing I've been preaching to those Dunderhead members of the Parliament every year, for the past ten years now. I'm not even paraphrasing, he really did say Dunderhead. Perhaps it's a German word. Someone should really check it out. Anyway, von Bülow reached the conclusion that if Germany failed to protect its maritime interests, then it would suffer, and perhaps collapse economically, leading to its political disintegration, and nobody wants that. Hadley and Sarty recall the results of the First Naval Bill, I remember that one in 1898 that we covered earlier. Quote, as imposing, as the size or quality of these ships, which matched or exceeded those of capital units of any major maritime power, was von Tirpitz's success for marshalling the enthusiastic support for naval expansion to an army-oriented, virtually landlocked populace. This required a powerful public relations program. The German Naval League, which had been spreading the gospel of navalism and naval prestige, had by 1901 over 600,000 members, and provided a broadly based and dynamic corps of converts, through which Tirpitz could sell his message." But why? Why was Germany so determined to build a navy? It didn't really need it. Let's be honest, nobody was actually going to steal their colonies from them if they couldn't defend them by sea. So if not for defence, then what for? Perhaps the argument for a navy as a symbol of a world power is a relevant one. But was the development of the navy as necessary as the Kaiser, or indeed Tirpitz, proclaimed? Before we get into the actual German plans for America, and they are fascinating so stick with me here, I'd just like to cover a bit about the propaganda within Germany at this time. It was no easy task convincing Germans who had always known of the British naval superiority that building a navy of their own to rival it was a good idea. Hadley and Sarty summarized the German naval strategy. Quote, the German naval fleet was actually an offensive weapon built with Britain and later North America in mind. Germany justified it as a defensive force in light of the then current risk of deterrence. The military concept of the risk principle, as Admiral Holweg wrote in reply to British reproaches that Germany was setting the pace for a naval arms race, was a cross between offence and defence. Let's not forget, America gained a lot of international recognition, power, and prestige from 1890 to 1900. Its apparent entry into the concert of powers was recognised at least by Germany but in a mostly negative light. America, having annexed much Caribbean, Pacific, and Far East territories, made it a rival of Germany. Oh, and would you look at that, America had quite a nice navy too. It was a question of destiny for some. Germany had reached a ferocious level of power on the continent, and navy could only make this power greater. Germany needed to break out of its natural confines to realise its true potential, as a naval and imperial power on the world stage. In order to realise Germany's potential, Germany's population had to be on side. And to bring it on side, a campaign of propaganda was launched which sought to obliterate foolish notions of restraint and British considerations. As Germany's leading newspaper on the fleet exercises explained though, Germans did not yet think Navy to the extent that Germans' vital interests require. Although the newspaper concludes that such attitudes will change in time, since Germans would overcome that prejudice that their geography and history contradict this idea of having a navy. All the while, children were told of the importance of having a strong navy, and were provided with ample picture books and catchy slogans encouraging them to believe in the German case for a navy. Our pride is with the fleet, one poster read. The Reich will greet the waves, read another. Ironically, Germany upheld Britain as the example of a country made great by a strong navy, yet again. All the while, German naval planners were creating contingency plans and basing their whole strategy on a naval war with Britain. Who else, a young Winston Churchill famously asked, is the German navy to be directed against, except Britain? Well, Mr. Churchill, German planners were also occupying themselves with other uses for their navy, which included a war against America. Admiral Edward von Manti disregarded the German Admiralty's earlier emphasis on cruiser warfare and instead suggested military occupation of Norfolk, Hampton Roads, and Newport News, all in Virginia, by combined army and naval forces. For the primary naval assault, he selected the area between Portland and Norfolk, for what he called the heart of the American country, where America would be stuck at its most sensitive point and forced to accept peace. Subsequent operations could be struck up Chesapeake Bay, towards Washington and Baltimore. Von Manti appended sketches of harbours and estuaries, and listed distances to be run, but he virtually neglected the issue of resupplying an assault across 3,000 miles of open sea. Nor was he daunted by the size of the population centres which the German forces of occupation were expected to control. Von Manti instead pondered out the abject state of the US Navy, with its antiquated technology and its minuscule defence budget. In his mind, democracy itself hampered the development of a strong navy, because, as he put it, every citizen can speak his mind, and if his opinion is rejected, he simply throws care to the winds and makes the loudest noise in the press. Manti's so-called findings were then submitted to the German Admiralty, and the ignorance continued, as Hadley and Sarty explains. Von Mantry's patently impractical scheme of 1898 was assessed by successive senior officers. One reviewer disagreed with Mantry's identification of the main target, and instead proposed the Delaware River, from which point New York and Philadelphia could be threatened. For the rest, so he observed, von Mantry ought to have mentioned the US Navy's serious defects. And here, the reviewer trotted out the usual litany, i.e. the American service was unprepared and did not have a balanced fleet and consisted of higgledy-piggledy collection of troops whose officers were so old that they blocked promotion and forced younger, more promising types either to leave the service or become indifferent. When von Manti's paper reached the desk of the chief of the German Baltic Naval Station, Admiral Hans von Koester, it received almost entirely favorable marks. Von Koester was a naval officer of considerable influence. He was known in naval circles as the taskmaster of the German fleet, and would press for tactical and technical reform that would bring the German navy to an unprecedented level of combat readiness. Von Koster accepted von Manti's paper as an industrious piece of work, which in a panoramic way gives a general overview of the coastal conditions of the United States. Significantly, he found it a timely and especially interesting proposal. There is little doubt that some of Germany's most prominent naval officers were contemplating war with the United States." War with Spain gave America a chance to prove just how prepared it was, and foreign newspaper reports about the war's various battles provided Germany with far more detail than it ever had. And yet the warning signs were ignored. It would take the First World War itself to convince the author of the plans, Erberhard von Manti, that Germany's greatest mistake was not just considering a naval war with America, but building a navy at all. He wrote in 1929, thirty years after his plans had first been considered, we the navy, the home fleet and the fleet staff clung to our home ports and thought continentally. Only when we puffed ourselves up with the theories of Mahan did we act as though we could survey the world. Under scrutiny, however, the fleet was just as continental European as the army general staff. We were a Prussian army corps planted in floating iron boxes. His conclusions are especially devastating because of their source. Manti was the author of the German plans against America, and in time, he became one of the harshest critics, not just of these plans, but also of the German willingness to accept them and provoke Britain into a naval race which would only increase the worldwide tension. But what was happening in the world in the years nineteen hundred and nineteen oh five? 1905? France, Britain, Germany, Italy, Austria, Russia and America all of their own stories to tell and I apologise if it seems like this episode, and much of the last one, has felt like World War I through the eyes of Germany. I tried to follow the story where the news is, and because of the Anglo-German rivalry that was soon become the European staple, heavy coverage of Germany is, I feel, a necessity. But that's not to say other countries don't deserve a mention. Let's start with France. France was a country obviously in a better situation than it had been diplomatically since 1871. But how did it look internally? In 1871, France and Germany had been relatively equal in population, but by 1914 the gap saw Germany contain a population over twice France's size. In terms of production, France was on par with Germany as the Franco-Prussian War wound down, but by 1914, France only produced 30% as much iron and 25% as much steel as Germany did. It would have been very easy to discount France as a secondary power, as many observers at the time did. But France's subsequent contribution to the war would prove to be far greater than previously anticipated by Germany or otherwise, and though the 20th century can be seen as a depressing one for French patriotism, the late pre-war years proved that France's position was not as bad as many believed. As James Joel in his book Origins of the First World War explains, quote, it is important to recognize that few Frenchmen believe their country finished as a world power in the era before 1914. The French people, in general, and Republicans in particular, attributed the defeat in the 1870 war to the corruption and incompetence of Napoleon and his advisers. And James Joll explains the strategy of Bismarck with regards to the huge war indemnity placed upon France in 1871. Quote, Bismarck had hoped that the indemnity would throw the French finances into such disorder as to make their recovery long and hard. The French people, however, unlike the Germans in 1919, chose to regard the payment as a matter of national honour and, against all expectations, paid the indemnity in little over two years, six months ahead of schedule. Nor did this impoverish the nation. Over the next forty years, the French showed that, in spite of their lagging industrial productivity, they enjoyed sufficient reserves of capital to remain a leading participant in the European economy. Iron and steel did not account for everything and it was the French ability to use its massive reserves of stored capital to float gigantic loans that was an important step towards the Franco-Russian alliance. French security vastly increased with the acquisition of this Russian alliance, and Europe soon began to look like two bratty children, one being the Triple Alliance, the other being the Franco-Russian Entente, fighting over nothing in particular. This is an issue I'll address later on in these specials, i.e. just how determined for a war both parties seemed despite the complete lack of real motive or aims for either. The alliance system was fragile, just fragile enough to create a complicated course towards conflict, should an exterior event trigger action. When Britain signed its alliance with Japan, there emerged the possibility of a third bratty child, albeit with imperial rather than European interests. If the Anglo-Japanese alliance could reconcile itself with either the Triple Alliance or the Franco-Russian entente, though, surely the stakes would be raised even higher. The next stage in the narrative was a war started by Japan against Russia on February 8, 1904. There was the real fear that the alliances already set in place would cause the world to spiral towards world war. But severe restraint was exercised by all sides, and this ensured that the conflict remained localised. Almost immediately after the war began, in April 1904, Britain and France came to terms with one another, and signed the Entente Cordiale. Though directed purely at each other's respective colonial ventures, it provided the platform for development thereafter, and was a significant agreement, because it formalised the status of the two countries within their African spheres of influence, and acknowledged either's desire to not go to war with the other. Its signing caused consternation in Germany, but von Bülow, German Chancellor from 1900 to 1909, assured the Reichstag of its purely colonial nature. It was not an alliance. Von Bulow did not seem to realise, though, that he had already alienated Britain to a dangerous extent due to his vocal policy of encouraging Russian expansion in Asia. Such declarations were one of the primary reasons Britain had ended its attempts to gain a German alliance in 1901 and had moved instead towards Japan, eager to challenge Russia's Asian designs. The war between Japan and Russia raged throughout 1904, and Chancellor von Bülow welcomed its effects with open arms, firmly believing that Britain's commitments to Japan would cause the conflict to escalate. William Carr explains the scene, quote, It was confidently assumed that the Anglo-French Entente would flounder once Britain was dragged into the war by her Japanese ally. In October, when Russian warships passing through the North Sea on their way to the Far East fired an error on British fishing vessels, Germany thought war certain. She attempted to exploit the situation by offering Russia a defensive alliance against Britain. Her calculation was that this would either compel France to come to terms with Germany, and this would loosen the Entente with Britain and bring a Continental League into being at last against Britain, or, if France refused, then at least the Franco-Russian alliance would be disrupted. End quote. But Germany would be unsuccessful in these attempts, and the conclusion of the war, while it did strengthen Germany because of its weakening of Russia, also moved France to pursue even harder the possibilities of an alliance with Britain. This was the crucial change in Europe that paved the way for the formation of the two solid-armed camps that would wage war against each other for four long years. Britain would sign the Anglo-Russian Entente in 1907, but for now Britain and France moved closer than ever before. Both officially recognized Germany as the greatest threat to the European peace. A change on the opinion of Russia on behalf of Britain was brought about by Russia's severe decline in status after its loss to Japan and subsequent revolutions, which saw the Tsar needing to appease the public by promising to create a Duma, or Parliament, in which they could acquire representation. Britain and France increased their military cooperation massively in 1907, and the military chiefs of staff from each discussed contingency plans and strategies for a war with Germany. Britain's entry into what would become the Triple Entente was significant for another power too, Italy. Italy did not want war with Britain under any circumstances, and it was immediately clear just how much the situation had changed. Before, the Franco-Russian alliance could not realistically defeat the combined forces of the Triple Alliance, But if Britain's power was thrown in on the side of Russia and France, and if Italy's was removed from the Triple Alliance, then the balance of power would surely be in Britain's favour. This was a fact that Germany responded to largely by increasing its militaristic capabilities, its navy to combat Britain, and its land forces to combat France and Russia. The next episode will cover the nature of these arrangements, and how the tension developed significantly enough to leave no doubt in anyone's mind as to the certainty of a future world war. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. This episode has covered the years 1896 to 1905, and next time we'll be looking at the years 1906 to 1914, and explain to you the very real volatility between the European powers that seemed to almost necessitate a war, while Europe approached the last year of peace. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll join me next time as we continue to direct the narrative over the next eight years. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks!
0: Planning for your next trip?